Rise of the Exile, Book 1 of the Shadow of the Tyrant King series, by J.D. Matter. Chapter 1, Escape. Nobody knew the world was about to change forever. It happened when Lucas Archer was just six years old. It was then that he found himself standing alongside his godparents, Frederick and Valerie Day. They were at street level amidst the skyscrapers of Atrium City. A crowd of people stood around them. They were all gazing skyward at a rare and beautiful sight, the Royal Airship. That shining vessel drifted gracefully over the tops of the buildings, high above and bathed in golden light. Lucas's father, the great mage and ambassador, was aboard that immense, rumbling aircraft, as was King Narmonius himself, lord of the woodland realm. Lucas could hardly wait to see his beloved father. It may have been a fortunate coincidence that Lucas was with his godparents. His father, however, might have called it providence. A loud bang echoed throughout the man-made canyon of buildings. Everyone lurched in sudden fright. Some loud metallic shrieks grated on their ears. Then the royal airship exploded into a violent swirling yellow and orange inferno. The massive thing fell horrendously toward them, scraping alongside the royal oak tower, the tallest building in Atrium City, leaving deep scars of broken glass and twisted metal along its once pristine, mirror-like surface. The crowds below scattered in every direction. Flaming debris rained upon them. Frederick Day scooped Lucas up and carried him under his arm like a rolled-up newspaper. They ran frantically with the crowds, not knowing full well where to find safety. Lucas saw a group of people crushed by a piece of building. A broken chunk of propeller zipped by, nearly ending his young life. When the main bulk of the airship crashed behind them, it resounded like thunder. Frederick ran for a long time. Lucas bobbed uncontrollably under his arm as he hurried through the crowds. Valerie was running alongside them when she suddenly dropped. Frederick stopped and pulled his wife back to her feet with his one free hand. Luckily, it was just a stumble. She was okay. A large piece of concrete and twisted rebar slammed down in front of them where they would have been if Valerie had not fallen. Later, she would swear that she was tripped by a bald man. The world quaked into a dangerous jumble of chaos all around them. Lucas saw a boy of about twelve years old floating in a fountain. He was burned, and his clothes were in tatters, but he was alive. Lucas wondered if perhaps that boy was on the airship, and if he was, then maybe his father survived as well. Lucas denied the finality of the disaster. His beloved father was dead, and he could not cope with that. He lost consciousness. Atrium City was being invaded. The Royal Airship disaster marked the first of a series of destructive events. Legions of soldiers, clad in shining armor, flooded the streets. They wore white tunics with the wicked emblem of the Black Eagle. Most carried swords, but there were many archers, too. Their invasion of the Shining City was cruel and merciless. The common folk who dwelt there were no match for the sharp, coordinated tactics of the Black Eagle troops. We need to go now, 
Frederick shouted as they left their home. They're hunting down the rest of the royal families. So Frederick and Valerie Day took Lucas, whom they promised to protect, and ran from the doomed city. On horseback, they rode deep into the great expanse, a seemingly endless forest. They bypassed the broken roads and strange ancient ruins within those murky woods. They cut through the open, hilly land of Cree far to the east. Beyond the unknown wilds, they found seclusion. At last, they settled in an unnamed, swampy land far from any explored or civilized place. Chapter 2 Fugitives Six years later, once again, Lucas Archer did not realize how much his life was about to change. It was his twelfth birthday when he groggily awoke to his godparents' hushed, argumentative whispers. He got up and crept toward the door. The wooden floorboards creaked mutinously beneath his feet. He cringed with every step. He was sure that every lull in their conversation was because they heard him. It seemed they did not hear him, fortunately, and Lucas managed to crack his door open barely enough to facilitate eavesdropping. We can't stay here anymore. It isn't fair to Lucas, pleaded Valerie. Being caught isn't fair to Lucas either, retorted Frederick. The swamp is no place for an adolescent. Valerie looked weary and desperate. Her long, matted black hair partially hid her pale face. Her shoulders slumped as she sat at the kitchen table. Everything here is so dreary and oppressive. Lucas doesn't deserve this. He's so charming and personable. He would shine if he were back in civilization. Think about it. We're the only two people he's seen since he was six years old. Harklin wouldn't have wanted that. There's a whole world out there waiting for him. There's more to life than this dreary place. There's more to life than hunting and gathering. There's more than we could ever teach him. He has the right to experience it. She took a deep breath before continuing. Frederick, I, of all people, understand your trepidation, but they're looking for us, not him. They don't even know Lucas exists. Just, just think. Valerie's voice faltered. She was tired of arguing. I know, said Frederick. But where could we go? Where won't they find us? Cree, Valerie forgot to whisper. Her enthusiasm renewed as Frederick finally seemed willing to listen to reason. Cree? Yes, it's so perfect. As Valerie spoke, Frederick shuffled through old parchments, looking for a map. It's not too far from uncharted territory, but it's still very far from Atrium City, so nobody's going to recognize us. It's supposed to be so peaceful there. Lucas could go to a real school with other children. Frederick found his map and spread it upon the table. Indeed, Cree might be promising. Look here. His finger traced various rivers and plateaus upon the crumbling map. It's strategically irrelevant. Right. So why would they invade Cree? We'd be safe there. I must admit I am tired of this swamp as well. And Cree is an interesting idea. All right. I'll check it out. But don't get your hopes up. Tell Lucas I'm on an extended hunting trip looking for a snore calf or something. It might take a while. 
But I need to see if Cree is everything we think it is before we just pack up and go. Okay, hun. Valerie looked happier than Lucas had ever seen her. Frederick left the kitchen and began gathering supplies for his voyage. You can come out now, she said. Lucas's heart leapt. Lucas's godfather was gone for several weeks. Frederick delved into the unexplored gladelands and beyond. He kept to the old woods and barren fields. He trekked through vast wilderness before finding a suitable passage. Cree was open, breezy, and hilly. Compared to the surrounding forests, Cree was like a fine lawn. He found a stony town cradled quaintly between the hills, a jewel amidst the wilds. For Frederick, venturing into the town was a scary notion. Nevertheless, he explored that place, which was called Devonstone. He hoped no one would recognize him. Lucas's happiness, however, was worth the risk. Frederick Day returned to the swamp with good news. Cree was every bit the sanctuary they hoped for and more. They abandoned the swamp cottage Frederick built six years ago. Lucas hardly remembered living anywhere that was not covered with green muck. Seeing wide blue sky was strange after dwelling in sticky mists for so long. Cree's emerald rolling grassy hills were soon before him. Lucas was in awe. Lucas's godfather brought them to Devonstone. That stony town was actually Cree's capital. It was scenic and peaceful, which made them become complacent. When Frederick and Valerie Day emerged into civilization with their godson, most people mistook them for Lucas's grandparents, for they had led stressful lives and aged prematurely. Cree's tranquility and friendly people were exactly what they needed. Frederick and Valerie stopped going cloaked or disguised and let the invigorating sun shine upon their faces once again. No one stopped them. No one grabbed them by the collar. People simply smiled and walked by without a care. Lucas's godparents were happy again, something they never thought likely. Frederick, being particularly paranoid, still avoided socializing whenever possible. The fewer people who knew the name Frederick Day, the better, he thought. He avoided places like the markets, therefore, where conversation was inevitable. Despite the inconvenience, he was still adamant about providing food solely by hunting and gathering from the neighboring forests. They bought a modest brick house on Maple Street. It was not much, but it was a mansion compared to their green-filmed swamp cottage. The day's lives were returning to normal, as if they just awoke from a six-year nightmare. Lucas felt amazed to be freely mingling with strangers. He had never been happier, for hiding in antisocial seclusion stifled his open, carefree personality. He was allowed to roam, for he was merely a child, unknown and unsought. Lucas seemed average, but had a pleasing air. His sandy, unkempt hair somehow looked charming. Few people noticed him, but those who did usually smiled, because he had a cheerful glow which was contagious. His walk was springy, and his voice friendly and optimistic. He was inquisitive, but not to the point of being obnoxious. To the casual passerby, he was just another jubilant child. There were, after all, many of those around. 
Lucas wandered downtown's bustling cobblestone streets, which was nothing more than a rural town compared to the other major cities. The markets were busy that day in anticipation of the annual end-of-summer festival. Lucas watched people hustle to and fro with bundles of groceries. He had almost forgotten that there were so many people in the world. Everyone at the marketplace was an adult, giants in comparison. He felt insignificant, wandering through a forest of people. Through the crowd, he finally spotted someone else his age. Beneath a storefront awning, there was a lanky, awkward boy perusing a table covered with stacks of dusty books. Lucas zigzagged through the crowd, working his way toward the gangly boy. Hi, I'm Lucas. The boy at the bookstore was significantly taller than Lucas and was startled by the sudden voice that seemed to emanate from nowhere. He peripherally noticed Lucas's bright blue eyes staring up at him. Lucas gawked for a minute at the tall boy's eyes, which blinked repeatedly and were hugely magnified behind crooked glasses. The tall boy said nothing. Lucas thought he might not have heard him. Hi, I'm Lucas. What's your name? He spoke louder and slower as he stretched out a hand ready to shake. The tall boy gazed in disbelief, as if Lucas were a strange creature whom he needed to assess whether or not to be dangerous. I... I am Geraticus Giromates Tuvoi Aritimaculum. There was a hint of pride in his voice. Lucas squinted, but made a conscious effort to keep a nonchalant expression, as if the name he just heard was a completely normal, everyday name. Oh, nice to meet you, Gematilus Gergida Geraticus. The tall boy, clearly annoyed, ignored Lucas's outstretched hand. Sorry, I'm sorry. But your name is a bit difficult for me to pronounce. What do your friends call you? I don't have any friends. His hasty answer made him feel a bit pathetic, so he added, No time for friends. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't have any friends either, Gigi. Lucas was disconcerted. He already needed to apologize. Twice. What did you call me? Gigi. Could be your... uh... nickname. So people don't need to say things like, Hey, how are you, Japotamus, Jicolatus, Aflaticus, Wampotamus? They could just say, Hey, Gigi. The tall boy did not bother correcting Lucas's abysmal attempt at his proper name. He looked threateningly offended, but almost subconsciously felt slightly flattered that a peer took an interest in him. He easily understood that Lucas was naive, and butchering his name was not meant as an insult. Lucas... You're not from around here, are you? His tone was rife with pompous attitude. Well, Gigi, no. The tall boy closed his eyes and sighed as he heard his grand name being mashed into the caveman-like noise that was his new archaic name, Gigi. I used to live in the woodlands. You're still in the woodlands? Gigi was frustrated. He began to think of a way to escape. No, I mean the swamp to the east. You lived in the swamp? Uh, Isn't that what I just said? Gigi held his book at the spine with one hand and slammed it shut. Whatever dramatic effect he intended was lost when a dust cloud puffed from the book and into his own face, causing him to hack and sneeze. Lucas's brow raised. He immediately regretted telling Gigi where he used to live. You must have seen a plethora of fascinating organisms there. 
said Chi-Chi. Well, I... Huh? Have you ever seen a blue-scaled tree crawler? Or a snorkath? Or, or a dagger-billed wisp? Gigi was suddenly intensely interested in Lucas. He spoke almost too rapidly to comprehend. Yeah, I've seen loads of things. After that reply, Gigi was enthralled. They talked for hours about all matters of wildlife in the looming swamp beyond Cree's margin. Gigi had never actually met anyone that spent so much time in the border swamp. He assumed that anyone foolish enough to linger there would eventually be eaten, stung, poisoned, etc. It was obvious to Lucas that Gigi was immensely intelligent. He knew everything about the flora and fauna of the swamp, despite never having set foot there. Lucas concluded that Gigi constantly read and retained everything about every subject known to man. They were friends before the day was over. Anyone might have guessed. It was highly unlikely that they, of all people, would become friends. Chapter 3 Happiness Marred The end of Summer Festival was a uniquely euphoric moment in Lucas's life. It had been years since he saw such a grand feast. Never before had he seen so many people dancing, and he had never seen so many games and shows. The general feeling of widespread joy seemed almost tangible. The setting sun glowed orange against a rich rose sky. Grassy hills normally darkened by dusk were instead shimmering and multicolored due to the many festive lights strung from tent to tent. The first few sparkling fireworks began to burst and pop in the darkening sky. Music from various bands mingled and at times was overwhelming. Everyone was laughing, dancing, eating, and drinking. Some were drinking a little too much. Some were outright drunk and giddy. Couples were kissing here and there. Random shows were free to anyone that happened by, whether it was a magic show, a demonstration of strength, or a popular play. The celebration went strong, deep into the starry night. Lucas and Gigi wandered aimlessly, having a grand time. Though Gigi did not confess it, he would have skipped the festival and stayed home if not for Lucas's insistence. Nor did he confess that he was having the best time of his life, but he needn't. That was obvious to anyone who could see his smiling face. Everyone was exuberant and cheerful. Lucas could hardly take it all in. Gigi was momentarily content to gnaw on a comically overgrown drumstick. A random passerby plopped a goofy jester hat onto Lucas's head before disappearing into the crowd, which would have been a strange occurrence at any other time. Lucas laughed as the world lit up with fireworks. The smoky fireworks smell mingled with roasting food. Lucas believed that it was the most magical place in the world. He felt lucky to be there. It was a euphoric feeling, no doubt amplified by being accustomed to the dull swamp. Blinded by excitement and jubilation, he did not expect his happiness to end so abruptly. Life was cruel, for a small malicious act marred great joy. He was completely oblivious when it happened. A rock speedily flew through the crowd and cracked Lucas upon the back of his head, with great precision and a sharp sting. Ouch! He spun around, and so did Gigi. Crack! Another rock bounced off Gigi's forehead. 
He quickly slapped his hand to his face as a minute trickle of blood dripped onto his nose. He whipped off his glasses and vigorously rubbed his forehead. What was that? yelled Gigi. They looked down and saw what had struck them. Two smooth white river rocks were on the ground, egg-like and incongruous. They heard a little girl's distinct laugh. Though hundreds of people were laughing and having a good time, the little girl's laugh seemed wicked and relevant. She remained unseen, but her presence was unmistakable. Why would anyone do that? Lucas said as he stooped to pick up the offending rock and examine it. Most kids are cruel, Lucas. It's a defense mechanism. Well, they're going to need a damn good defense mechanism if I ever get a hold of them. Their ad hoc hunt for the girl sniper was brief. Gigi's negligible cut was quickly forgotten. They were distracted by a pair of hilarious acrobats. An athletic couple, possibly married, was dressed in colorful tights as they darted about. The skillful duo pretended to trip each other up, only to expertly recover at the last second of what would have been a painful fall. The gathering crowd oohed and aahed in simultaneous crescendo with each acrobatic feat. The male acrobat just completed a mid-air somersault and landed in a one-handed handstand. The crowd cheered. Another rock sailed through the crowd with deadly precision. It brought the acrobat down like a crumbling house of cards. The female acrobat was in mid-air when it happened, and the distraction caused her to crash painfully onto her partner. Heads turned in every direction. Lucas and Gigi did not hesitate to continue their hunt, for the elusive sniper had struck again. It was their civic duty to apprehend and possibly torture the little girl. The young vigilantes were business-bound and tried to appear capable of brutality, puffed up and scowl-faced. They prowled throughout the festival, without knowing full well who to suspect. The thick throngs of people were thinning, which left even fewer suspects. At that late hour, the bands were playing more love songs, and only slow-dancing couples remained. Lucas and Gigi felt out of place, and decided to quit their search at last. It was time to part ways and go home. It happened as they said their goodbyes. Crack! Another smooth white river rock hit Lucas in exactly the same swelling lump the previous rock had hit. Gigi spun around. Crack! A rock hit him in the same spot as well. They charged into the darkness and screamed the most menacing war cry two twelve-year-olds could muster. They were answered by the girl's fleeting laugh. Gigi was furious. Lucas's scowl faltered, and he cocked his head slightly. You gotta admit, said Lucas, she's good. Chapter 4. New Friends Cree children highly dreaded the day after the end of summer festival. It was the first day of school. Clusters of students dismally marched toward West Woodland Middle School, zombie-like in their gait, no doubt impaired by the previous night's antics. People wondered why children were allowed to have such a late night before the first day of school, but the old woodland traditions were not necessarily prudent, they were fun. In Cree, fun usually outranked consequence. Lucas walked with his new friend Gigi. 
Their boisterous attitudes made it seem as though they were headed to another festival, which was unlike the oppressed masses of their peers who knew all too well where they were headed. Gigi had a spring in his step, for he enjoyed school. Lucas had a general sense of excitement, for he had never been to school. Lucas was homeschooled by his godparents and seemed thus far to be of average intelligence, his true cunning yet to be realized. He worried about being behind his peers' ability, however, for his only friend thus far was a genius. Then Lucas noticed other kids having a funny face contest. Some were telling absurdly stupid jokes. Others were moving in a trance-like daze. Lucas suddenly felt adequate. The school loomed before them. It was a large three-story brick building. In bold letters, West Woodland Middle School was engraved on the facade, which reassured Lucas that it was, in fact, not a prison or labor camp of some sort. Lines of blank-faced children filed in through the main entrance. There was an amorphous crowd of students on the front grounds, which steadily grew larger by the second. Lucas saw swarms of children diverting to the crowd. He heard the unmistakable chant, Fight! 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 Lucas sprinted toward the crowd, which shocked Gigi, for he considered the spectacle appalling and had no desire to witness it. Lucas, wait! It was too late. Gigi reluctantly followed his new friend. Lucas plowed through the crowd with surprising vigor. Gigi traveled in his wake. The spectators had encircled themselves around a couple of grappling students. One of the students dwarfed the other, and it was increasingly obvious that he would be the victor as he imposed his will upon the smaller student. Gigi felt like he was in the midst of a gladiatorial struggle in an arena. The shouts were deafening as Lucas and Gigi pushed through to the center. Lucas arrived in time to see the larger boy repeatedly punch the smaller boy in the face. The smaller boy backed up and regained his composure. Lucas darted between them just as the larger boy was about to throw another wild punch. The large boy suddenly stopped himself, shocked that someone was audacious enough to get between him and his prey. What do you think you're doing? shouted the large boy. Now that Lucas was close, he appreciated the boy's unusual size. He was remarkably tree-trunk-shaped and towering. His shadow completely blotted out Lucas, which shielded him from the warm morning sun and sent a cold shiver of goosebumps across his skin. The large boy was intimidation personified. Someone from the crowd yelled, Get them both, Blake! I'm Lucas, Lucas Archer. Nice to meet you, Mr. Blake. How you know my name? Lucas spoke slowly. That kid over there addressed you as Blake when he suggested that you assault me. Yeah, good for you. Get out of my way. That kid's got a beating coming. Blake pointed menacingly at the smaller student, who looked disheveled. Uh, excuse me, Blake. Lucas did not move. But that was one mean right cross you just threw. Have you had any formal training? Blake looked pleasantly surprised by the compliment. Well, no, but... I see. Do you notice that your opponent is still standing? The small boy looked relieved, for at last someone came to his aid. 
Lucas rounded on the small boy, however, and squared off with him, which shocked everyone, especially Gigi. See, Blake, I noticed you only used your arm. And you got strong arms, but you need a better stance. Step back with one foot and face your opponent sideways, which protects you better and provides you with more leverage while striking. When you throw a right cross, use your whole body, twist your hips, and follow through a bit as if you were aiming behind his head. Lucas powerfully heaved his fist into the small boy's face. He dropped to the ground, completely unconscious. Lucas turned and looked at Blake as if nothing bizarre had just happened. Got it? Blake stood with his mouth gaping. Yeah. Good. Got it. He dully and deeply laughed. Lucas intrigued him. What was your name again? It was, and still is, Lucas. Lucas Archer. They shook hands. Blake's huge hand enveloped Lucas's. Anyone might have guessed it was highly unlikely that they, of all people, would become friends. Gigi, who was revolted by Lucas's crude behavior, wondered if becoming friends with Lucas was a mistake. Blake, on the other hand, was content to get Lucas's input on several various fighting techniques. Gigi cautiously interrupted their conversation, still shocked that casual conversation was possible between two people who recently committed acts of barbarism. Uh, excuse me, Blake, but why were you fighting with that little boy? What did he ever do to you? Blake was getting ready to fight again before Lucas intercepted him. Blake, this is Gigi. He's okay. He's a friend of mine. Gigi? The brute stared at Gigi for a moment and then smiled widely. Any friend of Lucas's is a friend of mine. Blake forcefully slapped Gigi on the back, which caused his glasses to slide down to the tip of his nose. What did you ask me? Oh, yeah. Listen, Gigi, I caught that little runt trying to pickpocket me, grabbed his arm just as he was about to pull my wallet out my pocket. It seemed Lucas became a celebrity on the first day of school. As the trio walked through the hall, Lucas saw several students whispering and pointing at him. Shortly thereafter, he heard his name again, not in a whisper, but in a shout. Lucas! Are you Lucas Archer? Lucas turned to see a bald, angry-looking man staring back at him. Yes, sir, I am. Get in here! The bald man pointed toward his open office door. Gigi and Blake began to follow, but the bald man shouted again, No! Just Lucas! Judging by the decadence of his office, he was an important man. The walls were covered with credentials and awards. Principal Philip Pumpernickel was inscribed into a bronze plaque on his desk. Lucas thought of him as Triple P. That could be his new Lucas-given name. Sit down! Lucas quickly obliged the order and sat in one of two chairs facing a huge, polished, cherry desk. The man plopped into a grand, plush chair behind the desk, and he became silhouetted by the morning sun beaming through an open window behind him. His shiny head glared in the morning light. He rested his elbows upon the desk and touched his fingertips together, making a little cage with his hands. He stared at Lucas 
assessed him, and tried to make him feel uncomfortable. When the bald man finally spoke, he sounded as if he tried to make his voice sound deeper and more forceful than it actually was. Do you know who I am? The principal, sir? I am Principal Philip. He exhaled a long, loud breath. I've been hearing some disquieting things about you, namely that you punched a student. It was a long silence. Well, what do you have to say for yourself? I suppose you did no such thing, correct? Oh, yes, sir. I punched a kid. I wanted to help him, so I knocked him out. Principal Phillips squinted and leaned closer, uncertain if he heard Lucas correctly. Why would you do such a thing? You see, he was already in a fight. He was getting badly beaten, and I figured that it was better for him to get knocked out after one punch than after fifty. Lucas, who was the boy you hit, and who was the boy he was fighting? I'm not sure, sir, but if the boy I hit hadn't done anything wrong, then he would probably be in here right now telling you what happened and who did it. Lucas, I realize you may be new here, but don't expect special treatment. If you see other students fighting, inform a teacher immediately and certainly don't join in. Understand? Yes, sir. You'll attend detention today. If I ever hear about you being in another fight, you'll be in more trouble than anyone has ever been in throughout the long, sad history of trouble. Understand? Yes, sir. That's a lot of trouble. Sure to discourage any? Indeed. Get to class. Chapter 5. Purple Hair and Vengeance Gigi furiously jotted down notes in history class. Lucas expected to see smoke rise up from his quill. Indeed, Lucas thought, Gigi would set his parchment ablaze and the flames would cause a panic. There would be a stampede of children as the school was engulfed in a blazing orange inferno. Lucas himself would single-handedly simultaneously carry four small children to safety. Then he would hopelessly, yet bravely, re-enter the harsh flames to rescue others. There would be girls, pretty girls, pleading with him not to go. It's too dangerous, Lucas, they would cry. Nevertheless, he would defiantly re-enter. Certain doom would claim him. He would wrench the limp bodies of victims from the flames, moments before being crushed by the collapsing building. As the smoke would clear, the pretty girls would squeal. There he is! He's so brave and handsome! He, heroically wounded and blackened, would pull a dozen more students and the history teacher from the smoldering rubble. Unfortunately, Principal Philip could not be saved. Lucas! 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 They would chant. Even his history teacher would shout, Lucas! Lucas! His history teacher's very real yell woke Lucas with a startled jerk. A small drool puddle had accumulated in front of his mouth. His cheek stuck slightly to his desk as he peeled it off and looked up at his angry teacher, Mr. Kalovenhoof. What did I just say? The angry teacher stared down at him. Lucas? He groggily blurted, and the class laughed. The teacher sighed. Before that, Lucas looked at Gigi, as if expecting answers telepathically. Gigi looked embarrassed for him. I... I don't know, 
Lucas admitted. Lucas, this is very important. I would think that after the trouble you got into this morning, that you, of all people, might be on your best behavior. Clearly, I was mistaken. We've been discussing the long, oppressive reign of the Tyrant King. When Lucas heard the words, Tyrant King, he perked up. He had heard hushed whisperings about the Tyrant King from his godparents. It was tantamount to hearing something profane. He immediately regretted falling asleep. Gigi would most likely let him read his no-doubt exemplary notes. Lucas, continued Mr. Kolovenhoof, if you can't stay awake, perhaps you should stand. Go on, stand up and go to the back of the class. Begrudgingly, Lucas stood and shuffled to the back of the class. He turned and watched as the teacher continued his unusually animated lecture. Mr. Kolovenhoof spoke intensely, excited about the subject of the tyrant. The teacher considered it to be the most important historical topic. Lucas listened attentively as he faced the backs of thirty or so students, who were quietly listening as well. All was still except Mr. Kolovenhoof, who was ranting about dark, oppressive times long past. Then there was a suspicious movement. Lucas noticed an unusual little girl. She had shockingly purple hair. The purple-haired girl, who had forgotten about Lucas and his vantage point, gingerly slipped a slingshot out of her pocket. Slowly, she loaded it with a smooth white river rock. She aimed carefully, expertly comfortable with her instrument. The little catapult released, and the rock sailed silently between students' oblivious heads. Crack! It thudded painfully into a boy's ear. Ouch! He screamed, and the class collectively jumped in their seats. She quickly concealed her weapon and tried to suppress a giggle by covering her mouth. A realization stirred in Lucas's insides, and restless vengeance swelled within him. After Mr. Kolovenhoof's lecture, Lucas approached the boy that had been struck in the ear. Excuse me, my name is Lucas Archer. A fearful expression flashed across the boy's face. Lucas suddenly realized that he was speaking to the boy he punched that morning. The unfortunate boy not only had a shiny black eye, but his ear was puffing up as well, to add injury to injury. Oh, it's you! Listen, I'm sorry I hit you earlier, but it was for your own good. Lucas explained his twisted logic. His charm intensified, making it difficult to dislike him. The tension eased. Maybe you could tell your parents that you fell down the stairs or something. Or a mountainside, Lucas thought, as the boy's face seemed to swell by the second. I don't have any parents, said the swelling boy, expecting unwanted sympathy. Really? Me neither. My parents died, said Lucas, a morbidly refreshing reaction. A long, friendly discussion about their respective situations ensued. Anyone might have guessed. It was highly unlikely that they, of all people, would become friends. What's your name, by the way? asked Lucas. Tim. Just Tim. Well, just Tim. I wanted to tell you that as I was standing back there, I saw who hit you with that rock. Yeah? She hit me and my friend Gigi with some rocks yesterday at the festival. She? Yep. That girl with the purple hair. Her. Lucas pointed at the girl as she filed out of the classroom, unaware that conspiracies were being orchestrated against her. 
Justin angrily marched toward the girl before Lucas grabbed his arm. No, wait. I have a better idea, Justin. What's your next class? Art? Everyone in our grade has art next. Right. Follow my lead. Gigi, Blake, come here. The other boys approached Lucas and Justin. Blake was shocked. Lucas, why are you talking to that thief? Lucas expertly explained what he learned about Justin's situation, that he was a needy orphan. Stealing was his only means of survival. He lived in a tent on the outskirts of town and pretended to have parents so that he would not be shipped to Atrium City, where he would live in an orphanage. Earlier, at the school's front entrance, he saw Blake's wallet sticking halfway out of his pocket. Normally, he would not have attempted to steal from someone so big, but it seemed like an easy opportunity. More importantly, he had not eaten in three days. Actually, he only missed breakfast, but Lucas thought three days had a more dramatic appeal, and Justin didn't feel the need to correct him. After the somewhat dramatized story, Blake's huge frame slightly jerked spasmodically as he tried to stop from crying. Lucas won him over, and Blake apologized to Justin with watery eyes. Gigi's faith in Lucas was also restored. He was happy to see everyone make amends. They were all friends, something Gigi never thought possible. Lucas had successfully assembled his fellow conspirators. They discussed the purple-haired sniper, and vengeance was at hand. Everyone settled in at art class, diligently working on their various art projects, as Mrs. Leafton, their instructor, wandered around critiquing their work. Lucas was an excellent artist. It was by far his best subject. Mrs. Leafton was flabbergasted when she reached Lucas and saw what he was doing. He had begun painting a beautiful forest landscape in oil on canvas. His work was more advanced than most adults could hope to achieve. Everyone gather round, said Mrs. Leafton in her high-pitched voice. Come and see what is possible if you just put forth a little effort. Lucas turned bright red as his peers crowded around him and gasped at his painting. That's excellent, said Gigi, jealous that the teacher's praise was not his for once. Lucas saw the slingshot girl remain behind. She did not care about his painting. She was too busy talking to a group of other girls. Perhaps they were discussing various ways to torture kittens. Maybe they were busy developing innovative ways to make babies cry. He heard them making fun of how red his face was. He also overheard one of them address the purple-haired girl as Merriweather. That was the name of the offending little brat, Merriweather. What a misleading name, Lucas thought. When the crowd dispersed from Lucas, he overloaded his brush with dark red paint. It was a raw color that had no business in his painting. He wandered away from his canvas and loitered his way closer to Merriweather. The teacher saw him but dared not reprimand her newest star pupil for taking a much-deserved break. Therefore, she ignored him. His opportunity for vengeance was finally at hand. What is that? Blake said to Lucas in a phony way. He was a bad actor. I don't know responded Lucas, shielding the paintbrush from Merriweather's view. Gigi stood and took his turn. I've never seen anything like it. 
They had Meriwether's full attention, as well as half the class. Just him approached. That's amazing, he said. Meriwether craned her neck, trying to catch a glimpse of the mysterious commotion. Lucas carefully hid his paintbrush with a cupped hand. Meriwether stood and took a couple steps toward them. Don't let Meriwether see this, Lucas whispered just audibly enough for her to hear. Don't let me see what? She marched forward and thrust her little body into their midst. Oh no, Lucas, she knows, droned Blake. I guess you better let her see it. Lucas winced. Blake was such a bad actor. Meriwether folded her arms and squinted. Suddenly, Lucas held the brush up with a dramatic flourish. Perhaps he was overacting a bit to compensate for Blake's poor performance. There was so much red paint that it was dripping down the handle and onto his hand. A brush? said Meriwether. Oh, real great, idiot. You can't see it? Lucas continued. See what? She was so snotty. It was going to be so fun. Lucas held the brush up to her face. It was so close that she was going cross-eyed as she scrutinized it. Can't you see it now? Lucas tried to stop from laughing as she inched her face closer to the wet brush, squinting, looking for something that wasn't there. The heavy brush would saturate the first thing it came into contact with. Washing out dark red oil paint would be a monumentally hellish task that surely no one would maliciously impose upon another human being. Splat! He tapped the brush onto her nose. She looked like a clown as she immediately recoiled in horror. There was so much paint that it ran like a faucet from her nose and onto her pretty blue blouse. The boy's collective laughter caused an infuriating swell of heat to rise up within her. Gee, said Lucas, your face is even more red than mine. Their laughter intensified. Without warning, Meriwether launched herself at Lucas. She was a violent blur of purple and red. Her little hands found their way around Lucas's neck. She was surprisingly powerful, and they both crashed to the floor. All eyes were upon them, and the entire class was hysterical. Mrs. Leafton wrenched Meriwether off Lucas and screamed at the sight of her face. The red paint had smeared everywhere. Lucas, how dare you hit this poor little girl! My goodness, look at all this blood! But, Professor, it isn't. Meriwether unexpectedly let out a horrific shrill. She cried as loudly as she could, although there were no tears, and unlike Blake, she was an exceptional actor. Mrs. Leafton picked up Meriwether, who had suddenly become limp with apparent blood loss, and scurried to the door. Lucas, I cannot even begin to describe the amount of trouble you're in, Mrs. Leafton said as she left the classroom. You head down to the principal's office right away. A wry smile glinted across Meriwether's face just before she was out of view. She's good, said Blake. Lucas had a horrifying encounter as he left the classroom. Principal Philip happened to be in the hallway when he witnessed Mrs. Leafton carrying Meriwether's limp body from the classroom. Meriwether was moaning, or perhaps she was making an attempt at a death rattle. Principal Phillips' shock froze him in place. He thought about being the first principal in Cree's history to actually have a student die during his tenure. What happened? Principal Philip yelled and trembled. That boy, Mrs. Leafton pointed a long, accusing finger at Lucas, attacked this poor little girl. 
Principal Phillip's head jerked in Lucas's direction, their eyes locked. You!